Shemini, which means eight. And so we heard Ari reading that passage before, earlier this morning. And this is everything that started to happen after the temple, after the tabernacle was completed. Incidentally, this is the only parasha that is named by a number. Interesting. I don't know if it makes any difference, but it's the only one named by for a number. So here's the scene. We'll get caught up, and here we are. The All the articles, the snuffers, the incense holders, everything for the tabernacle is in place. And the priestly garments have already been prepared and completed, just like God said it should be done. And so, as Moses and Aaron, and as well as the sons were told, that they were going to, the Aaron and the sons were going to serve as the Kohanim, with Aaron as the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest. And they've offered up all the sacrifices required for them to start their ministry. So they are all ready to go. So far, so good, right? Everything is the way it should be. But you know how that goes. Just when you have things set up and lined up properly the way you want it to work, something happens. Even if you've done it to the letter of the law, something happens. But don't forget one thing, very important. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read that Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So should it be with us. We should not be trying to follow after something new that we've come up on our own with or somebody said, this is what we should do. Did God say to do it this way? That's what we have to ask ourselves. But after all the prescribed offerings for the dedication of the the Mishkan, the temple, the tabernacle, and the priests themselves, and they finished doing everything that they were supposed to do to start ministering to the people, we pick up with Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23, verses 23 and 24, where we read that Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came back out and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of Adonai and devoured the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So after Moses and Aaron enter the tabernacle and they come back out, they bless the people. Seems appropriate, right? And the glory of God now appears to all the people. And if that weren't enough, God sends down fire to consume the burnt offering. He sends fire from his presence. How's that for a call to worship? We used the shofar. God used his fire to come down and accept the offering. It's almost like God was putting his stamp of approval on everything that has been done up to this point. Because if we continue reading, first of all, Leviticus 9.24 at the end says, it's in Hebrew, it says, Kol ha'am vayaronu vayiplu al penehem. All the people shouted and fell on their faces. 
in the text, shouted is the word vayarunu, which comes from the root yaran, means joy, or to give a ringing cry. And fell, in this instance, in the Hebrew, is the word vayiplu, which comes from the root nafal, which meaning means to prostrate oneself. See, if you just read it the way it's written out in English, it almost sounds like they just fell out. Well, maybe. But it's more like, in essence, that they received that blessing from Moses and Aaron, and when they saw God's presence come down in the fire, and in essence putting his stamp of approval on everything, they began to worship. They shouted out with joy. And they fell on their faces in humble adoration. But what happens next, right after that, is where we're going to focus most of our time on. That's in chapter 10. And it's been a confusion for many Bible scholars for centuries as to why this event happened. So beginning at verse 1 in Leviticus chapter 10, it says, Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Avihu, took, each took his own censer, put fire in it, laid incense over it, and offer, offered unauthorized fire before Adonai, which he had not commanded them. So fire came out from the presence of Adonai once again, coming down, but this time he consumed them. So they died before Adonai. Then Moses said to Aharon, Here is what Adonai spoke of, saying, To those who are near me I will show myself holy. Upon the faces of all the people I will be glorified. Then Aaron kept silent. So Nadav and Avihu offered Esh Zarah, unauthorized fire, as we read it from the TLV, It's also translated as strange fire, profane fire, foreign fire, offensive fire, and if you don't understand it by now, unholy fire. So we read from the text that Nadav and Avihu took it upon themselves to fill their censers with fire and put incense in them, something that they were never told to do. But when we read it, we see that God took their lives to show his disapproval for their actions. Did they do anything wrong? See, between Leviticus 9.23 and Leviticus 10.2, there's a noticeable contrast between God's approval and disapproval. All within a very short four verses. There's actually a midrash. If that is surprising to you, it shouldn't be. It's almost there's a midrash on almost everything. It says that they drew near to God means that they sacrificed. And they were probably taking on a responsibility that was not for them to do. Therefore, they offered strange fire. In other words, not to God, but possibly as an act of idol worship. But the midrash also indicates that they didn't even consult each other because it says they each took their own censor. 
almost like they've got the same idea separately, but they went together to do it. It seems like between the two brothers, there was no partnership. They were just, in a sense, doing their own thing. So if we just read those four verses of Scripture, it doesn't look like there's been any major infraction, does it? Did they really do anything wrong? They were making an offering, an incense offering. And we wouldn't think that even if that was maybe not the right way to do it or the right thing to do, did it really merit capital punishment? Well, at face value, as far as we know, it's not hard to believe that they had no ill intentions in what they were doing. Just reading the text, you can't see that they're doing something that was wrong or that they knew they were doing something wrong and did it anyway. On the surface, it even appears like they just became swept up in the moment. And they could have been sincerely reacting spontaneously from their hearts in an act of worship, just like their, the rest of the people were doing. They began to worship. So maybe you could see that in those verses, the way it's written, that maybe that's what they were doing. But the commentators say that since there was never a specific prohibition that prevented them from doing it, there must have been some general knowledge that they should have known about it. So was there a prohibition saying they couldn't do what they were doing or shouldn't do what they were doing? Let's look back at Parashat Tetzaveh. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 1, it says, You are to make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. Moving on to verses 7 through 9, it says, Aaron must burn sweet spices of incense there every morning. When he attempts, when he attends the lamps, he is to burn it. Also, when Aaron, Aaron, Aaron keeps the lamps lit at dusk, he must burn it. There must be incense continually before Adonai throughout your generations. You must not offer up Zarah, unauthorized incense, on it. Nor should any burnt offering or grain offering be there, nor should you pour any drink offering there. So it's very clear that it's the high priest, it's the Kohen Hagadol, that is supposed to go in and burn the incense as an offering to Adonai not his sons. So, if the scripture says that, did Nadav and Avihu know that? Well, let's look back at Exodus 29.4. Because it says, you are to bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They were there. All four sons, including in addition to Aaron, were there when God gave those instructions and specifically said who it is that's to burn the incense on the altar twice a day. It said it was to be Aaron, indicating it was a job for the high priest, the Kohen Hagadol. So what did Yeshua say to the adversary in Matthew 4.4 4, when he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3? It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if God said, bring them here to the meeting, the tent of meeting, and I will give instructions, and he gives the instructions, doesn't that make it binding? 
and Nadav and Avihu would have been there and they would know that. So let's look for a moment at what are some of the reasons for God's deadly reaction. Now, would it surprise you that as uh, I studied this and I looked back and I saw all the things that are going on, that the rabbis all have their own thoughts as to the answer to that question. Yeah, we're going to just look at four of them really quickly. I'm just, I just listed, and we're not going to get into depth on them, but first, some of them say that they didn't consult with Moses first. I have a little bit of a problem with that in that if God already said it, why would they need to consult with Moses? They already knew it. But that's what some of the rabbis say. Then some of them say they brought an offering that was supposed to only be reserved for their father, the Kohen HaGadol. I agree with that one because that's what the scripture told us, that they, they were told. So I agree with that one. The third one is, according to one opinion in the Talmud, it was because they had been drinking wine before bringing their unauthorized offering. And since drinking wine before performing at the temple service, it was expressly forbidden. Maybe. I still think it's because only their father, the Kohen Hagadol, was allowed to do that. And the fourth reason, they say, is because they used their own items in the offering, which was forbidden. If you recall, when all the items for the tabernacle were ordered to be made, everything was made and stored in the tabernacle. So the fire pans for offering incense were in the tabernacle. The scripture that we read earlier clearly says they brought their own censers and filled them with coals and then put the incense on them. They didn't use those utensils that were designed and authorized to be used in the tabernacle. Also, even the clothing, the clothing, the utensils and all that did not belong to the individual Kohanim. It belonged to the people. So even the clothing, they were not to use their priestly garments when they went in there on their own. So, before I continue, a little bit of vocabulary. Put on your thinking caps, absorb this, write it down if you need to. But halakha is a collection of Jewish religious laws that were derived from both the written and the oral Torah. Do you understand oral Torah, written Torah? Okay, that's where halakha was gleaned from both areas, the oral and the written. Midrash is a genre of rabbinic literature that contains early interpretations and commentaries on the written Torah and the oral Torah as well as the non-legalistic rabbinic literature and sometimes even the halakha, which usually form this running commentary of specific passages within the scriptures. Mishnah is, means to study by re- repetition or to study and review. And it's the first major written redaction of the Jewish oral traditions, also known as the oral Torah. Then you have the Talmud, which is the central text of rabbinic Judaism, and it's the primary source of Jewish religious law and theology. I speak about things written in the Talmud a lot. Even some of our practices actually have Talmudic uh, origins. And then the Sifra is 
halachic midrash, which is specific to Leviticus, which is the book that we're reading now. And it's often quoted in the Talmud. And the study of Sifra is followed, followed the study of the Mishnah. Now we got all those, probably got you wondering, what is he talking about? Because I'm going to make reference to these areas, and I want you to have a general understanding of what those things are. The term we got earlier, the, the unauthorized fire, Esh Zarah, is a reference to the incense itself, not the fire per se. So another translation could even be an alien incense offering by fire. The Sifra speculates that they were bringing a voluntary offering to celebrate the dedication of the temple, the tabernacle rather. And there are a whole bunch of suggestions in the various Midrashim that offer several possible offenses on the part of Nadav and Abihu. In Leviticus Rabbah it says, because of nearness, kirva, for they penetrated into the innermost section of the sanctuary. Because of sacrificing, kriva, for they brought an offering they were not enjoined to bring. Because of alien fire, they brought coals inside the sanctuary, which came from an oven and not from the sacrificial altar. Midrashic interpretations play on the verb karav, which means to draw near or approach, which is actually found in the Hebrew in Leviticus 10.1, which we just read, where it says that they brought near they and presented. That's the phrase we read, vayakrivu. Think about it. Aaron had to take the coals from the altar that were already burning to put the incense on. Adab and Ibihu came in with coals already in their fire pans, in their censers. So they brought it from outside somewhere, but not from a holy source. The first of those interpretations for that offense was for encroaching too far into the sanctuary. It's supported in Leviticus chapter 16, first two verses, which refers back to this. In those verses, Aaron is warned not to repeat the mistake of his sons by going beyond the curtain, the parochet, in the sanctuary, other than one time a year, Yom Kippur. So that what? So that he won't die. So even Aaron, at this point, is not allowed to go that far in to the tabernacle. Whether it was because of what his sons did, that he was now restricted to stay out of that area, except on Yom Kippur or not, Scripture doesn't specify. But if we look at Leviticus chapter 16, like we just read, it says don't go there except for once a year. So in the opinion of one rabbi, he says, Nadav and Avihu can be understood as sincere religious seekers. They joined their father and all of Israel in awe as God's very presence rested in the Mishkan they had built. They wanted to serve. They wanted to be close to God. They were empowered and creative Jews who were paving their own path. Side note, there was their problem. He continues and says, they were not content to do just what everyone else does. 
They had to do something unique to them. Their worship had to be personally meaningful and lacked any sense of normativity. The message of their deaths seems to be that that there is no place for creativity in the Mikdash. There is no place for subjectivity in serving God. The same rules need to be for everyone. Well, according to what this rabbi says, there you can see the problem right there. It was all about them. What they wanted to do, so they did it. What they felt they needed to do, so they did it. Forgetting about the instructions that God had already given on who does what and when and how it's done. So yeah, this rabbi could be correct. That may be what they thought. But what do we always say? We make our plans and then God laughs. Well, in this case, he did more than laugh. He took their lives. Aren't you glad that when you make your own plans and execute them and they're not according to what God wanted you to do that he doesn't strike you down with fire? But isn't it interesting if we look at the regular Haftarah reading that is associated with this week's parsha? In by the way, this week because of Rosh Kodesh, we were in a different Haftarah, so you didn't hear this earlier. But it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 16, 17. And what it has in it, if anybody remembers back in that Haftarah, that that's when Uzzah reached out attempting to steady the ark. And what happened? God struck him down. But wait a minute. It was ordered that the ark be brought up by King David himself. But Uzzah was not supposed to be touching the ark. As we read that account, we become aware that, again, Uzzah met a similar fate as Nadav and Avihu because he was struck down. It wasn't by fire, but he dropped dead. And if you recall... The person who had been keeping the ark in his home before King David ordered it brought up to Jerusalem was named Nadav. Guess who Nadav was? He was Uzzah's father. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Was Uzzah not in that house the whole time the ark was in the house? And he gets struck down because he tried to steady it. He thought it was going to fall off the cart. But he was not told to touch the ark. He was not told he had anything to do with the service of Adonai in the, as far as the ark goes. Uzzah seemed to be doing the right thing, just as some of these commentators and this one rabbi think that Nadav and Avihu seemed like they were doing the right thing. They were bringing incense offering to the Lord. But what seems to be right isn't necessarily right. Just because he thought in his understanding this was the right thing to do. It's, 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 it's moving. It may fall off. And God struck him dead. So there seems to be this common thread, and that's why they're usually connected. This That Haftarah and this week's parsha from the Torah, it's usually the two are connected. And it seems that no matter what reason God has for his anger and judgment, it does become crystal clear that God is looking for his plan and purpose to be followed where it comes to drawing near to his presence. 
He set the policy. He set the protocol. He set the rules. Who are we to go against those rules? No matter how genuine, no matter how sincere Nadav, Avihu, or even Uzzah may have been, they were not following God's prescribed protocol, His way. And unfortunately, they paid the ultimate price for it. They may have been sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Whatever their motivations were, we will never know, except God reveals it to us, what the motivation of Nadav and Avihu was. We don't know what they were thinking. It may be true what this rabbi says. Maybe they truly were so caught up in the moment that they decided, oh, we're going to join in this worship by bringing an incense offering without stopping to think about what they were doing. Spontaneously. Much like the people spontaneously began to worship when the fire from God came down and consumed the offering. The important question is what does this mean for us today as we seek after and pursue the power and the presence of God? I mean, we all want to be in God's presence. We will all be in God's presence one day physically, but right now we want to be in God's presence. Even if it's spiritually, which is where we should be. So what do we, what do we get from this? And I believe it's very simple. Like many things, when it comes to God's ways. If you really look at what God said, what He intended, the answer is simple. And I'm not going to make it as simple as because God said it. Although we could stop with that. But the thing is, we have to do it His way. And understand that He is holy and He gives us instructions for specific purpose. And that reason is that we should follow His instructions And as we follow his instructions, he will allow us to become, be able to come into his presence with thanksgiving and praise. I, for one, am glad that God does not start our worship services by raining down fire. I really am. But we have other things that represent the power of God in our midst. We hear the shofar blast. We imagine that as God's voice speaking to us to come into a place of worship in our minds and our hearts. We have the songs that we sing which should further draw us into His presence. Again, with our voices now, as opposed to just His voice, as if his voice weren't enough. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, you, however, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of. For you know from where you have learned and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to make you wise, leading to salvation through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for restoration, and for training in righteousness, so that the person belonging to God may be capable, fully equipped for every good deed. 
Some scriptures would say, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we have the written word of God. And we're supposed to apply ourselves by studying it. And as we study the Word of God, we should be able to eventually, through the Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit, leading us and guiding us and helping us along the way, understand it. And once we understand it, we will do it. I venture to say that most believers today are still far from being there, but many of us are gotten closer to there by His grace. Because it's Him that allows us to continue to draw closer. He examines our hearts. We can't hide anything from Him. Much as we might try, much as we put on a facade for people, um, sometimes it, it's unnecessary because sometimes people who are spiritual and who have the Ruach in themselves will see right through there too because the Ruach will allow them to. And that's only so that the rest of us can't, won't be deceived by their actions. But we need to study. We need to follow after what God said. We need to not do like Navdav and Avihu and even Uzzah, which I think Uzzah was a lesser offense of the, the two offenses, but he still died because he did something he wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to touch the ark. An important element of that is this. If you recall, there were poles made to carry the ark. Specifically so, nobody would touch the ark. So I have to wonder, if the poles were in place, which I would imagine they were, had he grabbed one of the poles to steady it, would he still be alive after this incident? I would say probably yes. Because he didn't touch the ark. He touched the pole, which is what you're supposed to be touching if you're not anointed as a Kohen and directed to actually put your hands on the ark. And closing, in the book of Judah, Jude, I would say chapter 1, because, but there's only one chapter. The beginning of verse 20, it says, But you, loved ones, Continue building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Ruach HaKodesh, keeping yourselves in the love of God, eagerly waiting for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who are wavering. Save them by snatching them out of the fire. But on others have mercy with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. We are not in a place of condemning anyone to death. Condemning anyone to being consumed by the fire of God. We need to continue to pray for all mankind. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should have eternal life. But God didn't send His Son. See, we oftentimes skip verse 17 to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's the mission. The mission is to have the world saved. 
We often open the service with that very prayer that even Israel's enemies, we pray for their salvation. We pray that they would turn to the Most High God. They would turn to Him and accept Yeshua as their Messiah as well. That's how the Great Commission works. Going into the world, proclaiming the Gospel to Jew, Gentile, Arab, you name it. The world means everyone. We're not supposed to limit ourselves to our small circle, not just our community out here, but it's a great start, beginning with our community, letting it spread. Let the fire of God spread in such a way that it causes people to do like the people of Israel did at the beginning of our our teaching, that they will shout out in worship, and bow down on their faces to the ground to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Abba, we thank you and we praise you. For you do love us. And we love you. And we do love one another. Lord, it it can sometimes be very difficult to love unlovable people. But you didn't tell us to love the lovable people only. You want us to love the lovable and the unlovable so that they can become lovable. As we strive to do your will, as we strive to fulfill the great commission that you have set before us through your scriptures, give us the fire, give us the power, give us the ability to spread your word to even those that would have nothing to do with you. That person that claims that they're an atheist, Open their hearts. Open their minds to receive from you. Whoever the mouthpiece you use to approach them, give them your Ruach power, your Holy Spirit power to speak your words. And let it penetrate the hearer's hearts. Again, we prayed earlier, Lord, even Israel's enemies, we don't condemn them. We pray for them. We pray for your your power to fall upon them, that their hearts will be turned to you. And as John 3.17 says, that the whole world might be saved, might be delivered because of Yeshua and what He has done to bring about that salvation. Lord, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Show us new ways to reach out to that world that needs you so desperately. For us to go out and be bold ambassadors of your kingdom. Showing them your strength, your power, your love through our lives. Through our actions, not just our words. Give us your power. Give us your strength. In Yeshua's name. Amen.